Well, I now invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through verse 13. So this uh, brings us to the uh, prayer of the Apostle Paul that will kind of launch us uh, into the next section and also kind of wrap up the previous section. So 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 3, verse 11. This is uh, almost a benediction, but uh, I'm just calling it a prayer. He says in verse 11, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, here we see from the pen of the Apostle Paul just the importance of prayer. And prayer was certainly a priority in his life. I think we may struggle in that regard, but for the Apostle Paul, it was always a priority. Robert Murray McShane, one of the old Scottish ministers who died as a very young man, though very consecrated in his life to the Lord, and so his his ministry, which was very fruitful, was just short but bright. It was like a, a meteor flashing across the dark sky. But uh, Robert Murray McShane said this about prayer, that what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And if that is true, beloved, then many of us are in trouble. Eric Alexander another Scottish preacher, said we live in a time when prayer is looked upon as supplemental rather than fundamental. And John Bunyan, the Puritan, said you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. In other words, prayer is a priority. So I think we need all the help we can get in our prayer life. For I think many of the saints struggle in the area of prayer. And if prayer is indeed the lifeblood of the Christian life, then most of us are in need of an immediate transfusion. So we get to learn from one of the best. We get to learn from the Apostle Paul, one of the great prayer warriors of the church, and just kind of listen and pray along with him in many ways as he prays for the saints there in Thessalonica. Notice if you back up into verse 9 and 10, he has already expressed his joy and thanksgiving for them to God. In verse 10, he says, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. 
So Paul has already been expressing his fervent, earnest prayers night and day for the believers there in this church. And he continues that prayer now in verses 11 through 13. And I think we have much that we can learn from his prayers. And uh, he can encourage us in our own prayer life as we just see uh, how he prays for these believers. As we begin in verse uh, 11, we find that Paul prays for his reunion that he's already mentioned back in verse 10. In verse 10 again, he says, Night and day we, kept, we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. And now in verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. So it's a continuation of a prayer that he wants to be able to return and fellowship with them and minister the Word of God to their hearts. One of the things we uh, can learn from the Apostle Paul in his prayer life is who he prayed to and the significance of that. Because in this passage, there's actually very clearly, though implied, a reference to the doctrine of the Trinity. We find, for example... In verse 11, a double subject with a singular verb. So if you look at verse 11, he is in effect praying that our God and Father and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. So the Father and the Son are being prayed to, but he combines those two subjects with a singular verb direct. You would normally think the direct the word direct would be plural because there's a plural subject. But there's a plural subject but a singular verb. And in Paul's mind, I think he understands that they are both God. And we only worship one God. And so oftentimes in the syntax and the language of the text you'll find these little hints to the doctrine of the Trinity. Notice that Paul is also praying to Jesus. He's praying to the Father and to Jesus that they might direct His way back to them. And to pray to Jesus certainly would be an indication that Paul understood Him to be divine. Being God worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of thanksgiving, worthy of petition. Bringing our requests to Jesus because he is fully God. And then we also notice a reference to our Lord's deity in verse 11 when He calls Him our Lord. And then look down at verse 13. He addresses again our God and Father and the coming of our Lord Jesus. So Jesus here is referenced as our Lord twice in this section. Why is that significant? Because the word Lord in Greek, kurios, translates in the Old Testament Septuagint, the name for God, Yahweh. And this is fundamentally one of the ways that it's translated. So Lord is a title of deity. It references Jesus Christ as being fully God. In fact, Paul, in referencing Jesus as Lord, may have had Zechariah 14 verse 5 in mind when he says, Then the Lord, Yahweh, which is translated Kyrios in the Septuagint, 
which is the word Lord, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. So here the Lord is my God and He will come with the saints. And then look at verse 13. The coming of the Lord Jesus with His saints. There's a parallel almost as if Paul had Zechariah 14 verse 5 in mind when he wrote verse 13. But the fact that Jesus is referenced as Lord, a title for deity, again confirms this notion of the Trinity. So, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, are one. Jesus said that in John 10, I and the Father are one. And what He meant by that is that though they are two distinct persons, Father and Son, they are one in terms of their divine nature. We worship one God and three persons. And Jesus said, the Father and I are one. We share the same essence. We share the same nature. Though we are distinct persons within the Godhead, we are one in the divine nature of the Godhead. It's a very powerful statement what Jesus was telling His disciples. So the deity of Christ, we see, is foundational to the Christian faith. The deity of Christ was not added on later by the church in church history, it was fundamental and foundation, foundational to the gospel preaching of the first century church. But notice also this little pronoun, our. Now may our God and Father and Jesus our Lord. And this is very sweet and precious, this personal pronoun. He's our Father. God is our Father. Jesus is our Lord. And it speaks to a personal intimacy, a personal relationship that Paul and all the saints have with God. That He is our, our Father. He is our, our Lord. And this is one of the promises throughout Scripture where God says, and it's fulfilled in the New Covenant, which Jesus fulfilled. He says, I will be their God. And they will be my people. We'll be a family. We'll be connected. There'll be ownerships and rights and privileges that God gives to us. That He is our God. He, he's our Father. Jesus is our Savior. That we know Him. We have relationship with Him through what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We've been bought with a price and now we belong to God. And God in grace belongs to us. We are more than slaves. We are adopted into His family. We are children of God. God is our Father. And Christ is our Lord. As children, we are heirs and, and possessors of the glories of, of heaven because of this relationship with God. And this expression, our God and Father, Jesus, our Lord, that word our is unbreakable. This is not speaking of a temporary relationship, but an eternal and unchangeable relationship as, as, as eternal as the eternal nature of God who promises. And yet only the redeemed can say that God is our Father. 
for Jesus is our Lord. No one else really can. And the only reason why we can say that is because of the transforming grace of God. Because by nature, you see, we are not His children. We are children. Children of the devil. By nature, children of wrath. That is what we are by nature. Before God we stand, He is our judge. Ready to cast us headlong into the eternal flames. That is what we deserve. By nature, we are children of wrath deserving His eternal punishment. Because we have rebelled against Him. Because of our fallen and depraved nature, we have sinned against Him. We have rejected Him. And yet by His grace, He has redeemed us and brought us out of our slavery and bondage and adopted us as His children. So that now God is not our judge. He is our loving Heavenly Father. And Jesus is our Lord. And this is a, such a, a beautiful relationship that we now have because of what Christ has done for us. Where before we were rejected, where before we were defiled, where before we were on the, the blocks of being sold as slaves of the devil, worthy of hell. Now we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are Christ's body, His bride, His sheep, His temple in whom He dwells. He is our Lord. God is our Father. That's a relationship we should cherish and glory in. Because it's all through redeeming love. So he addresses in prayer, as we need to learn from Paul, to glory in addressing God as our Father, Jesus as our Lord. And what's the actual request? To direct our way to you. May God bring us back to you so we can have fellowship, so that we can enjoy one another's ministry, that we can uh, fill up what is deficient in your faith. Lord, direct our way back to them, he prays. The word direct actually can be uh, translated to make straight, to guide, to, to clear the way back, Lord. And this is because we saw in chapter 2 that Satan had hindered their return. So there were not, Paul was not able to get back to Thessalonica. Satan had put up some kind of a roadblock. Paul could not remove it, but he knew that God could. So he prays to the Father, he prays to, to the Son to direct their way back to them. And God can do it. God can open up a way forward when the way is blocked. Just like He did with Israel when their backs were against the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies were barreling down upon them to wipe them out. God could miraculously open a pathway through the Red Sea. So Paul is confident that God can remove this roadblock that Satan has put up and bring them back into the city of Thessalonica to carry on their ministry again. Obviously, this prayer suggests that Paul believed that God was sovereign, that God could orchestrate the affairs of men to bring that to pass, uh, that God was in control of all the events of life so that even our travel plans ultimately are subject to His sovereignty. When was the last time you 
prayed for God to direct your travel plans. Well, Paul did that regularly. He believed Proverbs 16.9 that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He knew that God was sovereign. And not only that, um, he believed that God was interested and concerned about him going back to Thessalonica. God was not so preoccupied in running the universe and the cosmos that he didn't have time to listen to a simple prayer. Oh God, let me go back and visit the saints in Thessalonica. But rather our God who is eternal and omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent can manage the, the spin of the galaxies as well as the spin of the electron around the nucleus of an atom with equal ease. He can do it all. There's nothing too big or too small for God. And what an encouragement for us to pray even about the little things of our life. Certainly Paul did as well. But I think when he offered this prayer for God to direct their way back to the Thessalonians, uh, he did it with a submissive spirit, knowing that ultimately God was in control. We find this in a number of uh, Paul's other expressions. For example, in Acts 18, as he's leaving the Ephesians, he says, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. If God wills. And then in Romans 1 verse 10, he says, Always in my prayers making request that perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He understood that he can offer that prayer to God, but he needs to submit to the sovereignty of God. He needs to submit that God may have a different plan. Now it's interesting that... Did, did, uh, the Lord answer that prayer? Actually, He did. But not right then. It was like five years later before Paul actually was able to return to Thessalonica. The best we can figure out looking at the book of Acts and his letters, it was at the end of his third missionary journey. He's on his second missionary journey when he's writing this letter. But towards the end of his third missionary journey, probably five years later, Paul finally made it back to Thessalonica. And he probably made two trips there at the end of his third missionary journey. I think all of this just kind of reminds us that it's God who guides ministry. It's God who opens doors for these kinds of things to go on. I think Paul always looked to God to guide him in his ministry, as should we. But also, he had to learn to wait on the sovereignty of God. God's plan was different so that he couldn't return quickly. And how difficult it is for us in our own prayer life when we're asking for God to to give us a blessing and it doesn't come quickly. And we can become discouraged and we can become disillusioned. We might even become irritated with God. God, I need this blessing. Why don't you give me this blessing? And yet oftentimes we need to submit to the sovereign, good, holy, wise will of our Father who loves us. We have to learn to wait. Delayed answers are not no answers. They're just wait. Trust. Abraham had to wait 25 years before his promised son. David had to wait probably around 10 years running from Saul before he was finally 
placed on the throne of Israel. So we have to learn to wait. And Paul will have to learn that lesson as well. But he brings this request to God, showing that we can bring all kinds of requests to the Lord. So we can learn that from the Apostle Paul. Secondly, in verse 12, he prays for an increase in their love. He says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So notice, he's now praying that the Lord, probably Jesus is mostly in view, but the Father is certainly referenced. May the Lord cause you, he's praying for the Thessalonians, the believers there, to increase and abound in love. So Paul certainly understood that the growth of love, the growth of Christian virtue, ultimately is in the hands of God. We have to do our part. We have to be responsible. We have to pursue the means of grace. But ultimately, God is the one who causes the growth. Paul can say, I planted a polis water, but God was causing the growth. So we need to understand if we need more joy, if we need more love, if we need more patience, we need to be praying to God because ultimately it comes from God. So he says, may the Lord cause you to increase and not just increase, but abound in love for one another. In other words, may your love not just grow, but may it overflow. A growing love and an overflowing love is what Paul wants for this church. He wants their love to be in abundance. In excess of the need. Uh, this same word is used when Jesus fed the 5,000 and they, and they took up all the excess bread and it filled up 12, lo- 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread. An overflowing and abundant provision. And what Paul is praying is that God would give that church so much love that whatever need there was within the body, their love was super abundant and overflowing in excess. More love than even the need that was manifested within the church. How we should pray that for our own church. That God would give us that kind of an increase and an abounding love for one another. So that whatever we face as a church, whether it's conflict or ministering to hurting people or needy people, that our love is so abundant that there's more love than what the need even requires. That's the nature of the love that He prays for this church. And why is love so important? Well, last week we saw that Paul emphasized faith and love. That was a goal of his ministry, to see faith in Christ and love for God and love for one another uh, grow and abound within them. And here again, he mentions love. Why is that so important? Well, again, love is the premier, it's the priority virtue of the new covenant. Love is the outward evidence of their living faith. If you don't have love, you don't have life. If you don't have love, then you're just really deceiving yourself because true faith will manifest a love for God, a love for others, which is primarily in view here. Look at what John says. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So you can see why Paul would emphasize the importance of love again. Love is important. It needs to abound because love heals wounds. It can heal emotional scars. Love can unite. Love can forgive. He said, may your love be abounding for one another and for all people. So again, the objects of this love are twofold. He says, may you increase and abound in love for one another. These would be other believers within the church. Again, the Lord emphasized this in John 13 when He said, A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So this is His new commandment, which is really an old commandment, but it's new in Christ because of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. But He says, love one another. And love them as I have loved you. A sacrificial love. Love one another. And then in his first letter, he writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love one another. See, the, the love that we're to have is a love that needs to be practiced and learned within the family. It's just like parents training kids. So you train your kids and the family is the training ground. You know, so that's where you're dealing with issues and training and discipling them within the family. Well, within the church, the church is a family. And if we're to love one another, we practice that. We demonstrate that within the context of the church family. This is our training ground as well for developing love. The church is where we learn to love one another in spite of our differences, in spite of our personalities, in spite of our disagreements. It's in this context that we learn to to return good for evil, to forgive one another, to strive for the unity of the body of Christ, love the perfect unity, to have genuine concern for one another, to, to pray for one another. This is all to be developed within the context of the local church. We have practical expressions of love for one another as we minister to our practical needs when we hear of them, where we serve one another, where we encourage one another, where we bear one another's burdens. This is how we show our love for for one another. When we pray, when we care, when when we bear one another. This is love. And this is what Paul is praying for. This is what we need to be praying for. That God would pour out through His Spirit love into our hearts for one another. But he goes on to add, remember, back in verse 12, that we're also to have a love for all people. So here he's probably talking about 
unbelievers outside the church, or some commentators said this is saints in other churches, other cities, and that would certainly include them as well. But when he says to love one another and to have a love, an overflowing love for all people, I think that must include unbelievers as well. This is what Jesus emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies. It's a whole lot more fun to hate your enemies, but we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that you may be sons of your Father who, in, who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here, God's love is a love of uh, common grace. A common grace goodness that God has for all people. The saints and the reprobate. The unbelievers and the believers. It's a love that brings certain blessings upon all kinds of people. Sunshine, rain falling on their crops. And that's what we're to imitate in our love for all people. That common grace, goodness, and kindness that seeks for their good were to love all people. Paul says in Galatians 6, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So first we take care of the needs within the church, and then we go beyond as an an expression of the ministry of the love of God in the Gospel. We're told by Paul as he wrote to Timothy to pray for all men. Pray for their salvation. And of course, this is one of the greatest ways that we love all people is to bring them the Gospel, to pray for their salvation. There's no greater love than to take the good news of the Gospel to unbelievers. And then he adds, just as we also do for you. In other words, may your love overflow for one another just as our love overflows for you. So Paul says, I'm your example. Silas and me and Timothy, we love you. Now, now remember what he's already told them in the letter leading up to this point. In chapter 2, he just he gushes his love out upon them when he says, you know, we were like a nursing mom to you. We tenderly cared for you like a nursing mother. We're like your father. Who directed you and, and taught you and admonished you. You were very dear to us. We, we, we were eagerly desiring to see you for you are our glory and our joy. And we really live when you stand firm in the Lord. And in all these previous expressions in this letter, Paul is just showing them how much he loved them, how much he wanted to spend time with them because they were family. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. The Spirit of God birthed this church through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And he was like their parent. And he had that deep love for them. Now he says, for that kind of a love, y'all have it for one another. Y'all care for one another and abound in love. May it overflow in your life. John Stott said, love is essential in ministering to one another because truth is hard 
if not softened by love. And love is soft if it's not strengthened by the truth. So we need to speak the truth, but speak it in love so that it might be persuasive. So Paul prays for an increase in love and how we can imitate him in doing that as well. And thirdly, Paul says in verse 13, so that, so now he introduces a purpose clause, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So now he's praying, may God cause your love to overflow so that He may establish your hearts in holiness without blame before God. Now ultimately, he has a second coming in mind as he ends the verse with, he wants our hearts to be established without blame in holiness before God at the second coming. When Christ comes with all of His saints. So he ultimately has the the second coming in mind. But he's praying here in verse 13 that God would establish their hearts to that end. The word to establish means to firmly fix, to to make something stable and solid, to, to strengthen it so it stands firm. That's the idea of establishing. So for example, like if you have in your backyard... Uh, a wooden fence, and one of the fence posts has gotten loose in the ground, so it's kind of wobbly, and it moves, and you can shake it. If you go out and dig around that fence post and pour in concrete, and once the concrete sets up, that fence post is like solid rock. It's going to hold that fence secure. And what Paul is praying is that God may establish or strengthen or firm up our hearts So that they are without blame and holiness when Christ comes back. So he really has a now emphasis, but ultimately a future emphasis. So what is he praying for basically? Well, he's praying for holiness. That's the essence of verse 13. He's praying that God would establish our hearts in holiness without blame. Now, again, there's a process now that is taking place where we're gradually being strengthened and established in holiness through sanctification. But ultimately, it'll be consummated in glorification, which is still future when Christ comes back. Let's look at those two aspects of it for a moment. There's a process of our being established and strengthened in holiness. You know, holiness is something that is um, essential for going to heaven. Notice what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 14. He says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, this is not the imputed righteousness of Christ here, but it's a practical holiness that we pursue after. 
You don't pursue after imputed righteousness. That's given to us right when we believe. We have it forever. Can't be increased. It's the very righteousness of Christ given to us. But in this verse, it's practical holiness that we pursue after just as we pursue peace with all men. But notice this practical holiness and sanctification. If you don't have it, you're not going to see the Lord. No holiness, no heaven. Now what he's not saying is that in some way we earn our way to heaven by our practical holiness. That is certainly not the case. It's always flawed, deficient. But we need a measure of holiness to show that we have in fact been born again. That our faith is genuine. If we've been born again and our faith is alive, it will produce a measure of holiness within our life. Again, no holiness, no heaven. So what does he mean by this? Well, again, the, the holiness back in verse 13 is the evidence that the Spirit of God is within us, that we have a new nature, that Christ dwells within us, that His Spirit is working within us. It's not perfection and holiness, but it's direction. It's, it's progress, even though it never becomes perfect in this life. And notice he begins this verse with a so that, because this is all connected to love. See, love is vital in growing in holiness. And that's a connection. He wants our love to abound and overflow. Because love is one of the vital virtues that promotes holiness within our life. How does that work? Well, the more I love God, the more I want to please God and obey God. The more I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, the more I want to be a blessing to them. The more I want to encourage them with godly fellowship. And all of this love promotes holiness and sanctification within our life. So that's why really verse 13 is connected back to the love of verse 12. It's as we grow in love that we are being strengthened in holiness. And sanctification. The two must go together. One of the best ways to advance holiness and sanctification, therefore, is to express our love for one another. Being involved in ministry to others. Because the more inward, the more self-absorbed we become, the more corrupt and defiled and unholy we become. The more Christ-centered and other-centered we become because we love them, then the more our selfish desires decrease and we become more like Christ in holiness. So there is a process, a progress in being established in holiness. And Paul certainly has that in mind. But he wants this practical sanctification to advance he wants our, our growth in love to produce more holiness because all of that is the process to confirm assurance in our hearts that we do belong to God, that uh, the Spirit of God indwells us so that when Christ comes back, we will be confirmed perfectly in holiness. We'll be glorified. 
And that seems to be ultimately the main end, the goal of this verse. So he prays that we might grow in love so that the Lord will establish and strengthen your hearts in holiness now so that when we are before God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus, when He comes back, we will be established and confirmed in holiness. We'll be glorified forever in holiness. A perfect holiness when Christ comes back. The connection is that holiness must be begun, have been begun in this life for holiness to be perfected in the next life. If we have no holiness now, it's an evidence that we don't know the Lord, we don't belong to the Lord, and we will not be glorified and go to heaven when Christ comes back. There must be some advance, some progress in holiness now so that when Christ returns, we will be perfectly established in holiness before Him. Only those in whom the work of God has begun, that work of sanctification, will be made glorified and holy in the presence of God when Jesus comes back. So that growing in holiness now is an assurance and evidence that we will be perfected in holiness when the Lord comes back. Remember what Paul told um, the Colossians. He told them, you know, you need to always be directing your thoughts to heaven. Remember in Colossians 3, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That's what Paul is doing here. Saints, grow in love. Grow in love so one day you will be you will be confirmed and perfected in holiness when Jesus comes back. So he's encouraging them to grow in love now, abound in love, but always have an eye on the future glory that awaits us. That's our motivation for living holy now. To know that one day we'll be confirmed and perfected and glorified in His presence whenever He comes. And notice again what he emphasizes at the end of the verse. The timing when we will be perfected without blame in holiness before our God and Father. It's at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of His saints. So one day when Christ comes back, He will come with all of His saints. Who are the saints? Well, they're not the super holy people that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that have so much holiness and they've, they've done all these incredible works and a miracle or two and so now they're canonized as saints. So they're like, that super category, that's not taught in the Bible. Every child of God is a saint. We have all received the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have a new nature so that now we are all saints. We're not sinless, perfect saints, practically speaking, but we are called saints throughout the Bible. When Jesus Christ comes back, He will come back with all of His saints. Well, what what does Paul mean by that? Well, many of the saints have died. And their souls are now with the Lord in heaven. And this is what Paul will emphasize later on in the next chapter. That when Christ comes back, He brings 
all of those saints with Him. Those who have already died. Those who are with Him in heaven now. And He comes with His saints. But on that day, He will also come for His saints because many of the saints are still on earth. And He comes for us that we might be changed and glorified as well. So when Christ comes, He will come with His saints and will also come for His saints. And that's what He has in mind here in verse 13. So let me, let me wrap up. So Paul has been praying first that he might be able to go back and minister to the Thessalonians. He desires fellowship with the church. And that's something that we should cherish. That's something we should pray for. That we, that we have fellowship with one another. We're all a part of the body of Christ and we need that mutual ministry. Secondly, he prayed for love. Not only love for one another, but for love for those outside the church. That we would grow and advance in that love. But he prays that we would overflow in love so that we would grow and be established and strengthened in holiness, which is the mark of those who will be glorified when Jesus comes back. It's a process of holiness now, but when Christ comes back, He'll perfect us in holiness forever. So Paul's focus is on the present love, the present fellowship, the present being strengthened in holiness, awaiting and looking forward to that future day of glory yet to come. That's the climax of Christ's redemptive work in history. When saints are glorified in the presence of our glorified Savior. That's what all of history is moving towards. That is God's great work going on now in the world. Christ is building His church. That is the most important thing that's taking place in history right now. All that's going on in the world today is not the main thing. The main thing in history is Christ is building His church and one day He will come back for them. Everything else is just the background. Everything else is just to, to highlight what Christ is doing in building His church. So that all the rebellion in the world today, all the sin that's in the world today, all the injustice, all the corruption, all the perversions, all the persecutions, all the wars going on in the world today is not the main thing. Christ building His church, that's the main thing. And the glory of that work is seen by all the darkness in the world around us. But the darkness is not the main thing. Christ building His church. Sanctifying His church. Preparing them to be a bride that one day He will come back for. That is the main thing in history. It's just like if you've ever seen, I'm sure as you all have, a, a picture of the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. There's an artistic technique that's used there with great power. This is a masterpiece, as you know. But there's a lot of darkness in her clothes and the surroundings on the bottom half of the picture. And all that darkness is designed to draw you to the light of the face of the Mona Lisa. She's the main thing. 
And it's the same thing with our world today. All the darkness of the sin, the confusion, the evil that's going on in the world, that's not the main thing. It's Christ building His church, establishing her in holiness, awaiting the day when Christ will come back. What Paul is saying, saints, love one another, but keep your eye on that future glory. Because as you look forward to the, rec- to the return of Christ, when He comes with His saints for His saints, and we are established and glorified in holiness to be with Him forever and ever, that will encourage your love now, your faith, your pursuit after holiness, if you keep your eye on the glory of the future yet to be revealed. All of this, I think, is what we can learn from how Paul is praying. That in our prayer life, we need to pray for one another and love for one another, but always keep an eye to what Christ is doing now with the blessed hope of His return. When we lose that future perspective, then it can undermine our love and our pursuit of holiness in this life. When we lose sight of this blessed hope, our lives become more earthbound and more confined to the temporal circumstances of our life if we forget to look forward and see the glory of what Christ will do when He returns. You know, many years ago, we visited the Nature Center down at Beaver's Bend down in southeast Oklahoma. I remember at this nature center there was a cage outside and inside this cage was a red-tailed hawk a beautiful bird but once you look closely at the bird one of his wings had been mangled and it was obvious that this hawk would never fly again never before its injury however it happened I don't know but it would fly no doubt hundreds of yards in the sky and be able to see things from a perspective that you cannot get from earth. And that bird probably flew and would spot its prey and, and uh, fly up at great heights. Having the winds lift him up and having that heavenly perspective. But never again. That hawk would never ride on those rising currents of air to see the sights that it once did. And now for the rest of its life, that hawk would be confined to a cage that was seven feet high, ten feet long, and eight feet wide. He's confined forever. Christians can become like that if we lose our heavenly perspective. When we forget and lose sight of the glory that awaits us when Christ comes, then suddenly we, we find our wing is mangled. And suddenly we are confined within a cage of all the things that are happening around me here and now. And we cannot go airbound. We cannot get that heavenly perspective. We cannot fly in the heavenly places by faith in Christ because we're totally focused upon what's happening to us in this life. While Paul is reminding the saints there at Thessalonica is to lift your eyes up, see the glory of Christ coming with His saints and for His saints 
when we will be perfectly established in holiness and let that future glory give you wings to fly above the temporal problems and darkness and confusion and irritations of the world to see the big purpose, the big picture, the big story of what God is doing now. God is building His church. Christ is building His church. That's the main thing that's going on in history. And we need to be reminded of that. Because one day, when Christ finishes that work of building His church, He will come and claim His church. And will be with Him in glory forever and ever. And to have that hope can help to stimulate our love to pursue more holiness because of what lies ahead of us. This is why prayer is so important. Because we need much grace from God to love one another and to pursue after holiness. We cannot do that. We will not do that without God's help. And that's why Paul is committed to prayer and why prayer is so vital. Because we need grace to grow in love, to overflow in love, and to pursue holiness awaiting glory when Christ returns. So may God encourage our prayer life to focus on these great things that Paul has done in this prayer. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for being able to go to a prayer meeting with the Apostle Paul presiding and just be able to listen to him pray, to listen to his heart, which reflects the very heart of our Savior who came and died that we might belong to Him forever. And Lord, although it is biblical, it is lawful for us to pray for all of our temporal needs. For You tell us to pray for our daily bread. We can certainly pray for all of our temporal needs and physical needs. But Lord, let us not forget the spiritual needs. Let us not forget that the main thing going on in the world right now is Christ is building His church. He's saving sinners and He's sanctifying the saints. And Lord, may that encourage us to long to grow with more love that we might be more holy. And though our holiness in this life will always be imperfect and impartial, that we await the day when You will come and confirm and strengthen and establish us in a glory that is perfect and flawless to be with You forever in heaven. Lord, bring that vision, that perspective into our hearts that we with the wings of the Spirit might soar in the heavenlies for the glory of Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.